As the founder and former CEO of TaskRabbit, Leah Buskey has over 15 years of experience building and creating technology products that have reached millions of people around the globe. In 2008, she founded TaskRabbit, the world's leading on-demand service marketplace, which connects consumers that are looking for help with everyday tasks with independent workers willing and able to lend a hand. Leah has since expanded TaskRabbit internationally, raising more than $50 million in venture funding, and has inspired legions of startups in the collaborative consumption space. In 2012, Fast Company named Leah one of the 100 most creative people in business, and her achievements have been featured in The Wall Street Journal, Wired, and Time. You know, I think we're still in the early days of the sharing economy. I think we've barely scratched the surface with the innovations that have happened, with the companies that have been built. I think we're, you know, web 1.0 of the sharing economy, and there'll be a whole new wave based on new technologies emerging around AI and VR and voice. Um, so I think, I think it's exciting times. I think there's so much more to build, but at the core of the sharing economy, it's really just about people. At an Ivy Entrepreneur Night in San Francisco, Leah discussed the entrepreneurial skills necessary to become a creative leader, innovate across diverse industries, and launch a successful business around the world. Please enjoy our conversation with Leah Buskey. You're listening to the Ivy Podcast by Ivy, the social university. We are the grad school for life. And our mission is to spark world-changing collaborations by introducing you to the most inspiring people, ideas, and experiences in the world. For more information about the Ivy community and to find out about events happening near you, visit ivy.com and email us at membership at ivy.com. of being that visionary, that creation mm -hmm. moment. What led you to actually begin TaskRabbit? Where did you go? Um, so I'll tell the story about the dog food, which some of you may have heard. Um, but I'm going to start a little bit earlier than that. And this is a story I actually don't share that often. But um, I was working as an engineer at IBM, and I'd been there about eight years. I'd say five years in, I started to get a little bit antsy. I was starting to think, I probably have these other skills that I'm not using on a daily basis, and um, you know, what am I going to do about that? And so it wasn't until actually very recently that I realized what flipped the switch in my head, and it was after reading um, the book Originals by Adam Grant. If anyone, please, I re highly recommend it if you haven't read it. But in this book, he talks about um, having vuja day moments. So deja vu is when you see something for the first time, but you feel like you've been there before, right? We've all had it. It's like a simple glitch in the matrix. Um, but vuja day is the opposite of that. It's when you see something a thousand times and you're able to take a step back and look at it from a different perspective. And so I was eight years into IBM. I was getting a little bit antsy. I was starting to think, what else is out there? What else could I be doing? And I realize now 
that I was starting to train myself to think entrepreneurially. I started to try to look at the world differently. And when I hit pain points in real life, I would stop myself and slow down and think, how might I solve this? Is there a better way to do this? And so it was a cold winter night in February of 2008. I was living in Boston at the time. And my husband and I were getting ready to go to dinner, and we had called a cab to come pick us up and take us across town when we realized we were out of dog food. And at the time, we had this 100-pound yellow lab named Kobe, who we kept very well fed. (laughs) And uh, we thought, oh, how are we going to get this dog food? Are we really going to have the cab stop on the way home? What if all the stores are closed? Are we going to bring the dog food with us to the restaurant? Like, it was just such a simple problem. Why wasn't there a simple solution? February of 2008 was the dark ages of technology. I mean, the iPhone had just come out. That was a difficult time. It was hard, right? It was hard. Good times. Yes. (laughs) Simpler times. Simpler times. The iPhone had just come out four months earlier. Facebook was just breaking out of the college scene, becoming more mainstream. No one was building location-based awareness in their apps. There was no app store, right? And so as a technologist myself, I became really passionate about mashing up three technologies, social, location, and mobile, and thinking about how I could utilize them to connect real people in the real world to get real things done, like getting dog food. And in the last couple of years, it's become in real time, which is a whole nother dimension. Uh, but that was really the moment of inspiration. But I'd say I'd be lying to you if I said, if I didn't say, it was many months leading up to that moment that allowed me to see it. I probably wouldn't have seen it unless I had been in that mindset. I love that. So, and, and we spend so much time in, in Silicon Valley and, and really across the globe these days thinking about the entrepreneurial mindset. Mm-hmm. And you talk about sort of thinking differently and having these skills that you kind of honed, whether you knew it or not, really. It's true, yeah. Right. What other skills do you think kind of came into play that really allowed you to be so successful, well, maybe I shouldn't jump to that, but allowed you to kind of gravitate to this amazing path that you've been on for the last many, many years? You know, it's weird when I think back. I mean, my dad was in the Air Force for 30 years. Uh, my mom was a stay-at-home mom. It wasn't like there was there were entrepreneurs in my family. It wasn't something I had been exposed to. But from a very young age, I remember when I was eight years old, I asked my dad what the highest rank in a company was. And he told me it was being a CEO, a chief executive officer. So I immediately formed my first company (laughs) called Pollution Solutions. (laughs) And it was a recycling program in my elementary school. And it was actually just really an excuse to boss around my little sister and my cousin. But we had offices I set up, like in our basement. And so, like, I don't know. I was already, I don't know. Letterhead, I assume, at least. Absolutely. Letterhead designed by me and my crayons, right? I actually still have posters. It's it's crazy. Like brochures I created and stuff. I don't know. So this this entrepreneurial way of, of life hit me from early on. And I'm not sure from where. Um... But I didn't realize that I was born to be an entrepreneur until I uh, founded TaskRabbit. So it was late in life. I was 28 years old when I had the idea for TaskRabbit and decided to quit my job at IBM and kind of go on this journey. And now my only regret is, is why didn't I do it sooner? Why didn't I I could have had a a whole nother company in me in my 20s that I like I just didn't have. 
but we celebrate sort of starting where you did. And <laughs> Absolutely. As an amazing engineer, how do you think those skills that you did have in that yeah. first experience as engineer, like really played into sort of chapter one, perhaps, of your first uh, startup that you built? Yeah, I mean, what I love about engineering and computer science um, is that whatever you have in your head, whatever you think up, you can build. You don't have to rely on anyone else to build what's in your head. And so that was never a barrier for me. And so I feel very fortunate. I've always been drawn to math and computer science and engineering. And, you know, throughout high school and college, I was a math computer science major. And so I was lucky enough to be drawn to those fields and just had the right skill set and just fell in love with that. And then that mashed up with entrepreneurship really well. And I was able to kind of bootstrap things on my own for a long time. It was actually 12, 18 months before we got our first real round of funding. Um, And so it was a lot of um, those skills building, but then just a lot of hustle, right? And a lot of these other softer skills that you may not even know you have (laughs) until you're thrown into that situation. Totally. I think uh, one of the other things that happens a lot in Silicon Valley is we talk about the importance of grit and tenacity and sort of learning through from our experiences, mm-hmm. not necessarily always celebrating failures, but realizing mm-hmm. they help. Now sort of being where you have in this amazing career and looking back on sort of perhaps your early days as CEO, what do you think you know you would advise your earlier self to think of perhaps differently <laughs> as being a CEO in those early days or or what would you celebrate more of or or wish you had done perhaps a little bit differently you know I mean there's so many things um, as I think back I mean it's almost been a decade since I founded the company so it's been a good chunk of time I feel like to reflect and it really hasn't I really haven't had the time to stop and reflect until I transitioned my role into chairwoman last April. And up until that point, you're just running, you're going nonstop. And I was never, I'm not the type of person that likes to look back and think about like, oh, what could I do differently? And what were those failures? Like, you just don't have time for that. I didn't have time for that in my mind. But now I've had a little bit of time and a little bit of space, and which has been a really great exercise um, to be able to do. And when I think back to those early days of founding the company, like. I don't even know how my investors invested in me. Like considering like I, like all the things I didn't know then, it's just crazy to think about and had to learn. There's such a huge learning curve. Um, luckily, I found amazing people like Ann Miraco at Floodgate who led our seed round of investment. Um, but uh, it was a it was a huge learning curve. Um, but I think that was the most fun part for me was just learning how to raise money, how to build a pitch deck, how to run operations, how to run marketing. What is customer acquisition? What are lifetime values? I didn't go to business school, right? I I really came out of a programming engineering job, and then learned everything else, or found great people to surround myself with mm-hmm. that had that expertise. And so, you know, as I look back, I think uh, things that I wish I could have done differently or faster would be, you know, around building the team and just gathering great people even earlier than I did. Um, You know, now we have um, Stacey Brown-Philpot, who is the CEO, who I promoted. She was my COO for almost four years. Took me two years to recruit her out of Google. Mm. Um, She's just amazing. You know, just finding those right people, it has to be the right time, the company has to be at the right stage, all of those things have to align. Um, 
But it's been a lot of fun building that network and building those relationships and then just learning, mm -hmm. learning a lot from everyone around you. Mm -hmm. uh, absolutely. And I love that you sort of lean into a little bit of the importance of mentorship with mm -hmm. so much of what you just shared. Yeah. Um, you're, I'm going a little off script, but I assume investors, were there others that were key to you in those first few years that really made a monumental difference, you feel, looking back to like the ability for you to lead through what probably felt overwhelming, I'm sure, at times? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I think back, I, I compare it to just having this black box in front of me. And I needed people to be able to shine a little bit of light in that box mm -hmm. so that I could understand what I was doing, what I was building, what that landscape looked like, I hadn't seen it before, you know? And so one of the really key mentors early on, who I'm still very close to, is Scott Griffith, who at the time was the CEO of Zipcar. And I didn't know Scott ahead of time before I left IBM, but we got connected through a friend of a friend of a friend, and he invited me to come to his office and tell him about this idea I was working on. And we just really hit it off, and it turned out that what he was building at Zipcar around connecting people in a neighborhood and having them live more efficiently was very much aligned with how I was thinking about TaskRabbit. And so he let me sit at the Zipcar office for free for a year. I know. I mean, it's crazy to think, like, <laughs> what was wrong with Scott, right? No, I mean, it's just having people like that um, made a huge difference and a huge impact on me. So not only did I get to sit there for free, which was great from a financial standpoint, but I got to see what an amazing CEO looked like every single day. You know, he would walk through the room, and I kind of, like, had a desk out with, like, all his product and operations folks. And... You know, he would just walk through and he'd be like, hey, what are you working on? Show me what, you know, and it was just like that model, too, of being able to see that um, was so impactful for me early on. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. I love that. And actually, that's probably a great transition into getting to know a little bit more on your thoughts on this amazing industry and terminology that we throw out all the time. But in your own words, tell us how you sort of define and look at the world that we call the sharing economy. <laughs> what does it mean to you? Yeah. You know, it's funny that word, the sharing economy, it, it didn't really start emerging until like 2010. Mm -hmm. And so 2008, there was no word or name for what we were building. Um, I started calling it a service network. So instead of sharing, you know, social networking, it was more service oriented. Then the sharing economy emerged and that was bigger, right? It was about sharing all kinds of different things and assets in, in this peer-to-peer -peer marketplace model. And so it's been really exciting to see. I think in 2010, people were like, oh, the sharing economy, that's just a quick trend that's gonna go away, right? Like people weren't sure what was gonna happen. But we were doing it. We were living it. We saw it. We knew this wasn't a fleeting trend. Like, this was, this is the future. And it continues to be the future. You know, I think we're still in the early days of the sharing economy. I think we've barely scratched the surface with the innovations that have happened, with the companies that have been built. I think we're, you know, web... 1.0 of the sharing economy and there'll be a whole new wave based on new technologies emerging around AI and VR and voice. Um, so I think, I think it's exciting times. I think there's so much more to build, but at the core of the sharing economy, it's really just about people. And it's about connecting people in an age of technology, in the age of digital, to make people's lives better. Mm. All around. And for TaskRabbit, that means 
you know, you're a client and you need help and you're too busy. But for a tasker, that means having a flexible way of working and new ways of working. And so the sharing economy is about building a new economy around making life better for everyone involved. I love that. How do you think that from a generational or even from a consumer perspective, as the world has changed, that that definition is evolving or getting closer today? Are there, are there companies, are there trends that you're seeing like, wow, millennials are really gravitating to this, or mm-hmm. future of work is looking more clear around that yeah. as a result of the great legwork that you guys have laid with the shared economy? Well, it's interesting because you know when you think in 2008, if I told you, you were going to jump into a stranger's car off the street. <laughs> you would think I was insane, honestly. Like, that was crazy. It was crazy talk in 2008, 2009 even, maybe even 2010. And so the consumer mindset has shifted so dramatically and so quickly. I mean, it's in the course of like five, seven years, everything's changed but from the consumer standpoint. Um, expectations are different. I mentioned in the beginning, you know, on demand is this like in the last two years has become necessary. That's a whole new dimension. On demand wasn't necessary seven, ten years ago. People were willing to wait and, you know, we had this auction bidding based platform to start. And so, um, yeah, everything has shifted and changed. I think it will continue to change. It'll continue to accelerate. I think um, that will leave room for new companies to innovate and to emerge. It'll be tough for some companies to, to ride those waves and wa- ride those changes, and so it'll leave room for new, for new companies to be formed, new innovations to happen. Are there industries or trends that you're watching personally right now around the shared Um I'm really excited about seeing these marketplace models get applied to a lot of different industries, whether it's food or infrastructure or... Um, you know, of course, there's the whole thing around home rentals and cars, right, and services. I mean, there's so many different industries that you can apply these peer-to-peer models to. Um, I'll tell you one thing I don't love okay. about the sharing economy. I don't love when people talk about it as the gig economy. I hate that te- I hate that terminology because I think it's like it's so. Um, I find it to be demeaning personally. And I think it, it, it does nothing to actually speak to the impact that these economies are having. I mean, it, it kind of goes back to, oh, when the sharing economy first emerged, it's going to be this fleeting trend. It feels like the gig economy, the gig workers, this like fleeting, you know, one-off trend. And it's just so much bigger than that, and it has so much more impact than that. And so that's, that's something I'd like to see maybe be toned down. I think it will go away, that terminology. And I think that um, you know, new terminology may emerge, or we may continue to just focus on this broader sharing economy model, like which that. I'm a fan of. I, I love that, and I, I love how it connects back to the community. Right. Well, you talked a little bit about the transformation that the shared economy has made and continues to obviously make and will make for the foreseeable future. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was an interesting word you used in that, and that was model. And in fact, you guys have also, from a sustainable business perspective, changed your own business model. In fact, in 2014, I think it went mm-hmm. through a pretty radical shift. Can you talk us through a little bit about what was the precursor to that and what was it like being in the midst of that? Was it a scary moment? <laughs> uh, I'm sure it was. It was yes, probably like, it was. duh. Yeah. Uh, but nonetheless, like, how, how did you kind of get on board or lead through that moment? Yeah, I mean, when you think about it, so founded the company in 2008, 
um, founded it as this auction bidding, bidding place based platform, just like eBay. eBay was very popular at the time, doing very well. I thought eBay is for goods, TaskRabbit is, you know, the eBay for services. And that's literally how we pitched it, you know, to investors early on. So we, I always knew mobile was going to be a big component, but we didn't start on mobile because it was just me as an engineer. And so I started on the web. Um, and we got going on the web and it sort of snowballed. And you pick your head, you raise a lot of money and you pick your head up sort of four or five years in and you're kind of like, huh, is this auction platform like still working? The consumer wants things on demand now. Can we do it if it's an auction bidding based model? And so what had happened is the, like I said, the consumer mindset had shifted. The expectations had shifted sort of right out from under us. Um, and we had to rethink, like, if we were to start today, what would we build? And the mindset shifted so quickly, technology shifted so quickly, mobile shifted so quickly that we really said, all right, let's, let's restart. Um, the business model's the same. The vision and the mission of this company is the same. But we just need a different product that works for today's consumer, today's mindset. It was a massive risk. Massive risk to make this change. And it was really scary. And I didn't even realize what a big shift it was until we did it. And now I even, looking back, it's like, I can't even believe we did that. Because it wasn't just about product. That was the easy part. The hard part was actually taking, we had thousands and thousands of people, taskers, that were operationalized in a certain way, that were used to bidding on things, weren't used to being on demand, weren't used to putting in hourly rates or areas that they wanted to work or you know pre-registering for categories of work. I mean, it was a completely different operational model. Mm -hmm. And that was the hard part. The key to this change, and I'm so glad we did this, was before we launched it here in the US market, we did a test in London. And we weren't live in London in the UK yet, but we felt like, we need a different market, a clean market that's never heard of us before, where we can go test this new product to make sure it works before we start migrating millions of customers in the US over to this new model. And um, I'm so glad we did that because we launched it in London and it went really well and we had sort of key metrics we were looking at like repeat usage and conversion rates um, and taskers and how much money they were making. And we saw within the first four weeks that the platform metrics were double, if not triple, what they were in the US. And so we felt really confident at that point about making the change. We just actually had to make the change. And so it was hard operationally to operationalize that change, you know, 50,000 taskers, millions of customers. Um, from a technology standpoint, migrating, the database migration for that change was really complicated. It took hours. We had to do it overnight in the middle of the night. Um, but then when we turned it on, we knew it was going to work. And that was the key. We had seen it work in London. We knew it was working. We knew it was going to work here in the U.S. And so even though you know a lot of people were angry when we first made the change, taskers that were used to the old model, some of them didn't like the new model. There were all kinds of things. We're just like, listen, like this is what's right for the business. We know that the business is gonna scale faster on the new platform. Like we have we have to do this for the business. And so we had enough confidence, because um, we had seen it working, to just push forward. And I'm so glad we did. I mean, it's just been it was a huge inflection point for TaskRabbit.
one of the more interesting, well, I shouldn't say more interesting things, one of the challenging things that can happen in those moments of monumental pivots can be internal buy-in as well. And I know employee hmm. retention and satisfaction and engagement is core to sort of your philosophical beliefs of what's mm -hmm. important in leading and building a great company. Tell us a little bit about the culture that you built and like how you were drawn to it and what matters to you as sort of developing that team over time. Yeah, such a great question because I think that, um, you know, culture is something that I think a lot of people talk about, but a lot of companies don't spend time thinking about or strategizing about either. And, you know, for us at TaskRabbit, it's something that I had thought a lot about from day one. And what I realized is because the business is so mission driven, because our vision is to have such a tremendous impact on the future of work and empowering these micro entrepreneurs that it, it was a big part of our brand, but then it also attracted a certain type of person who wanted to work on that mission. So being a very mission-driven business and having strong core values from the beginning was really important. And then it attracted a certain type of person um, that really wanted to be part of these stories and be part of this mission. And then from there, we realized that it actually attracted a certain type of tasker as well. And so we started to see this thread from our mission and values to our brand. And a lot of companies will just stop there and like, yeah, we've got our values, we've got our brand, and we've got our mission, like, we're done. Yeah. But threading that into what type of person does that attract to your company and your team, and how are they gonna contribute to that mission and vision and make an impact? And then from there, threading it into the community and the marketplace of taskers, and how can we enable them to be a part of this mission and vision and brand so that they're out there every day living the same values, we're all aligned. That was really important and something that uh, you know, to some extent can happen organically, but you've gotta manage it at scale. Um, and you've gotta find ways to, to share those values uh, with everyone Absolutely. in a full, full circle. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, before we, we started, we had a great conversation around um, the importance of something that I'm sure all of you in this audience are passionate about, too, diversity and inclusivity, and especially in, in our market today. Um, how did that play in, if at all, and sort of when you originally started the great leadership team that you built, and then those team members that hired out, and even the engagement with taskers? Like, was that top of mind? Was that a worry? Was it a thought? Yeah, I mean, I think, again, it all stemmed from our core values, which stem from our mission and vision. And so, again, it attracted a certain type of person who is also very mission-driven. Um, you know, one of our core values is to act neighborly, right? And so that uh, can play very well in an office environment and being open and collaborative and sort of pitching in here and there. But then for the taskers as well, like that all plays in. And so finding you know, people that wanted to be part of the executive team that um, wanted to be neighborly, meaning like maybe they didn't have as big of an ego. Maybe they were willing to go outside of their job expertise and job function and pitch in when another team member needed help. You know, maybe they weren't as uh, like cutthroat about um, getting uh, recognition or getting credit for things, but it was more of like a team sport. I think those were the types of things that we established in the company that really enabled us to build out a fantastic culture and a fantastic team. Um, 
that all again sort of uh, tied tied it all together. Uh, that definition of neighborly is great. I will try to remember that for future ladies. You know, uh, as much as things are always great and always good in, in looking at culture, at times it can be difficult because you're also probably hearing the challenges that your taskers and your team are faced with, mm-hmm. um, too. So we talked a little bit about the pivot and hearing some of those complaints, perhaps, mm-hmm. uh, directly from taskers. Well, how did you engage or interact with customers? Because they are your customers. They're perhaps mm-hmm. some of your more important shareholders. How did you handle that? And what was it like to go through that? And, and what was the connection point for you as a CEO at that time? I mean, tactical things like everyone answered phones for like a week, including myself. You know, I, I was on the phone with people that would call in, random people that would call in, customers that would call in. Um, we also, I remember right after launch, you know, you get a huge influx into customer support and like product changes or bugs or, hey, why isn't this working or here's a suggestion. And so we would have these um, bugathons. <laughs> and I'm very competitive, so we made them into competitions where, you know, people... We kind of got that from the early setup of, like, Did starting you? the company super young with... Oh, yeah, right, here. yeah, <laughs> just a little competitive. Um, and so we had these, like, bugathons, and we'd all, um, you know, spend the day into the evening hours, like, just, like, crushing support tickets and crushing bugs. And then we would, you know, like stack rank like who got the most bugs you know done and I'm like I'm the CEO like I have to win like there is no way anyone is beating me that is right (laughs) and so and I started my career before I was an engineer at IBM in QA testing and so I know a thing or two about testing software yeah (laughs) and so I was like oh there's a typo right there bug you know and like support ticket and emailing yeah (laughs) exactly (laughs) emailing back customers you know and getting on the phone with customers I mean it was like all hands on deck we're all in it was such a massive change like it just and we're a small team we're still people are surprised we're still about 60 people total in San Francisco I mean it's a pretty small team for the impact that we've had and and what we've actually accomplished so it was all hands on deck including myself which was really fun yeah. That's awesome. I love that collaborative spirit. Kind yeah. of still keeping true to that core value yeah. that we talked about That's for you right. guys and having that community effect yeah. that's going on. Um, I guess, I, I, I think we, ha- I, we have about 15 minutes. So guys, hold to, I promise, not too many more panned questions and then we'll get to your guys' questions, which I'm sure are far more fascinating. Um, but I want to spend a few minutes kind of going a little bit deeper into your next evolutionary phase in your own leadership development. Um, you talked about sort of just coming into this role as executive chairwoman in the last year. Yeah. Let's start by looking at that. How has that transition period been like for you? Um, did you embrace it and go, yes, or was it like, really? I'm not sure I want that yet. No, How I did. I, I was so excited. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's interesting. I think what I realized was a couple things. One, I am a builder. I like the early stages. I like the innovation. I like when a problem hasn't been figured out yet and I can be part of brainstorming that solution. And so I realized that's kind of what I missed. Um, You know, eight, nine, almost 10 years in now that the company is at a very different stage and scale and the challenges are different. Um, And so, you know, I kind of 
I, maybe I have this eight-year itch. It's like eight years at IBM, eight years at TaskRabbit. <laughs> I started to get antsy, and I, you know, like same same story. I started to look around and think, like, ah, oh, you know, I, I kind of miss those early days. I kind of miss those building innovation times. And I looked around, and I was fortunate enough to have this amazing team I had built, including Stacy Ian, who we promoted from VP of Operations into the COO now. I mean, just such a strong team around me. And um, I thought, this is the right time. The company's in a great spot. We're going to hit profitability. Like, these guys are set up for success. I, of course, want to remain, you know, a strong part of this. And as executive chairwoman, I have been. Um, But it was really easy. It was really easy for me to make the transition. Uh, I think because I had such a great team that I trusted. Um, and Stacy and I have such a great, incredible partnership, um, and we're still very, very close. Um, so it's been fantastic. And you know, I will mention as well that I also had my second child in that time. So it was nice the second time around. The first time around, my daughter Amelia, who's now almost four, I was like right in the thick of. We were launching London with this new product, like when I was in the hospital having my first baby. <laughs> And so that was crazy. That was a crazy time. And so I was kind of looking forward to, like, having a little bit of time this time, you know, to have with the baby and the family. And I got that, too. So I kind of got the whole package in this last year, which has been really fantastic. And um, TaskRabbit will always be my firstborn, my first child, right? Like, that's how I look at it. And so now baby number three is, like, 10 months old. and We're getting ready to transition the first one to college. It's yeah, it's all, it's all good. Yeah. Uh, how, do you, how do you think that your own personal or professional definition of what success, what drives you when you get up every day mm. and all the things that you could be doing, like, what matters to you personally? Oh, I love that question. I have a really strong feeling about this, too. And this came with reflection in the last year. Um. I realized that so many times people focused are focused on winning. Like, I just want to win. I just want to, like, hit the right revenue run numbers. I just want to beat that competitor. I just want to hit these things. And winning is usually about the results, the metrics, the analytics. But I, what I realized is what's important to me is being successful. And that includes winning, but that also includes operating with purpose, operating with values, having an impact. And so to me, it's about striving for success and being successful, which is the entire package. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I knew very early on that TaskRabbit was going to be successful. I didn't know if we'd always win in the space, right? There are like, of course, ups and downs and like product changes and crazy things. But I knew very early on we'd be successful because we are having such a tremendous impact on people's lives. And we would hear story after story after story about how we were changing people's lives. And I was like, this is a success. Um, So I think just having that perspective is something that I not only look at TaskRabbit and think about, but in my own life as well. And like, how do I want to think about what I'm doing and where I'm spending my time? To me, it's about having the impact operating with values, operating with purpose, and then, yeah, winning comes along with that, too. Absolutely. Yeah. All right, so staying with that theme, and this will be the last question that I ask of you, um, what's the next chapter, then? Where are you heading as far as success and winning um, for your next chapter? Yeah, you know, I've been fortunate enough in the last year to have the time and space to reflect and think about where I wanted to focus my energy next, and 
I started doing more uh, angel investing and advising, and I've got really excited about uh, empowering this next generation of startups. And so you'll probably see me um, doing more on the investing side um, in the in the longer term. I love the early stages. I love that building an innovation piece. Um, and so I'm pretty excited about that. Thanks again for tuning in to the Ivy Podcast by Ivy, the social university. We are the grad school for life. And our mission is to spark world-changing collaborations by introducing you to the most inspiring people, ideas, and experiences in the world. Check us out at ivy.com for life-changing advice and gatherings and the foremost thought leaders shaping our world today. For more information about the Ivy community and to find out about events happening near you, visit ivy.com and email us via membership at ivy.com. Dream big and stay inspired.